so the French Revolution is going to be, for us, a good connection to the English Civil War. And there's this great LEQ prompt that you guys will probably get for your LEQ outline for this unit that'll have you compare and contrast the English Civil War with the French Revolution because there's so many easy similarities. Um, the thing that's kind of ironic is that both Maximilian Robespierre and the French Revolution and Napoleon will start out thinking that they're kind of taking and adopting a lot of the ideas of the French Revolution and the, the liberalism of the French Revolution, but then they'll both end in a very uh, dictatorial state. Um, Robespierre, who starts out as the incorruptible, is going to end as really a dictator um, by the end of that period of the radical phase, to the point where he his death is really what, the only thing that can end uh, the revolution. So um, I'm going to kind of today try to go under some of the underlying factors before the war, um, talk to you a little bit about the the poor and how people in uh, France are dealing with their situation. Um, and then also talk about how old regime, Europe, old regime Europe is present within what we call the ancient regime or old regime. Either way, is kind of an interchangeable thing. So if you look here, the one significant problem for the poor is that they're spending the majority of their income on food, uh, specifically bread. And then if that is the case... They really don't have any other disposable income, but the king is already taxing them at an incredibly high rate. Um, this is a budget on the left of a typical commoner. If your budget is 170% of what you make, clearly you're in the red. Um, but just food and rent alone is going to get you over what they were making. The tithe goes where? Tithe goes to the Catholic Church. So these things are all pretty much necessities at that, at that time. Um, taxes are something you can't get away from. And taxes were 35% of their income. Uh, and then you had to have clothes. Well, you know. Um, and so if you get to a typical budget, they were working at an extreme deficit. Now the king's budget isn't much better. Um, the thing that is kind of hilarious in this whole thing is that his coronation, meaning his party to become king, ate 10% of his budget for that year. So he's going to spend 10% of his budget on one party. Now, I realize that when some people get married, they do the same thing. But uh, if you look at Versailles, which is built by whom? Louis Fourteenth. Just the running of Versailles is 25% of his yearly income. So all the taxes coming from France, a quarter of that is going just to run Versailles. That's it. Um, and there, at one time, there were probably hundreds of servants um, in the palace. You also have a number of gardens that have to be taken care of. I mean, it's a really large property, to be fair. Um, it's being cleaned consistently, obviously. So uh, he's spending quite a bit of money there. Another issue, of course, is that this interest that he's paying mostly for foreign wars, specifically the American Revolution, which his uh, Louis XV had gone in and tried to help us, obviously, and does help us in breaking away from the British. But in the course of doing so, we essentially will bankrupt France, and that will, in turn, force the French over time to have to kind of pay back the debt that they had incurred uh, in that war. So as far as for us, again, the old regime or ancient regime, you can put old or ancient, whatever is more uh, fitting for you. They're kind of interchangeable ideas. Old regime Europe is when you're thinking about feudal Europe. And in France, right before the revolution is going to start, they're still living in a very ancient version of... Uh, society where it's almost like the feudal system and even though they have a voting body the estates general it hasn't been called in 175 years so by the time you get the estates general to be called what had already happened what was becoming commonplace throughout france yeah the whole Enlightenment ideologies, which are spreading through salons and cafes, and the, the, the group that is the most into this idea is whom? The, the bourgeois. 
the upper middle class that has time to sit there and go to a salon or a cafe and sit there and go, why don't we have rights? We're supposed to have certain natural rights. We have wealth, um, but we don't have any real voting wealth. We, we don't have any ability to move the dial. Um, and so one thing I do want you to put in your notes, you can put it as a triangle or you can just organize it as the first, second, and third estate. But the estates general in France is their voting body. Now, this was not a problem when you never called the Estates General. So in 175 years, they never called it. So when they do finally call it, they find out very quickly that even though they're being told, hey, you get to come here and vote, a lot of the people in the Third Estate, I don't think even realized how bad the system was until they show up. And when they do show up, they realize very quickly that the first estate and the second estate can just vote together and then the third estate essentially doesn't matter because they always win with a two-thirds vote. So the first estate, which is the clergy, made up about 1% of the population. The second estate, which is the aristocracy, makes anywhere between 2 and 3% of the population and about 97% of the population were the third estate. Now, the third estate is actually broken up into three groups. Does anyone know which three groups are a part of the third estate? You obviously have the very bottom, right? The poor, peasantry. What else do you have? You have, I'm going to put MC, the middle class. So your typical professionals, skilled artisans, things like that. And then what else do you have due to the increasing industrial revolution? The bourgeois. And so that bourgeois, that upper middle class, the owning class, is part of the third estate and they're unable to really have any significant power within the government. They're with the rest of everybody else. And so this system in and of itself is very much an old system, an ancient system that needs to, in, in a lot of these people's minds, go away. Um, as far as the amount of representatives that they were given, the first estate is given 300 representatives. Now they're still one vote together. The aristocracy has 300 representatives. They get one vote. And then the commoners actually had their divisions of France all kind of made up. And they have 648 people there. But again, they get one vote. So this system, again, always this group right here wins, no matter what. Because it's against your own interest to vote against the first or second estate if you're in there, mostly because the first and second estate paid almost no taxes. The, obviously, the first estate is paying no taxes, the Catholic Church, and the second estate is paying very little in taxes. The third estate, most of them are paying 35% or more in taxes on their money. Um, the aristocracy, if they were paying any, was paying less than probably 10%. I'm not sure on the exact number, but I know that it was significantly lower than the third estate. And so again, it's against nature, really, for these two groups to ever vote against each other. They would always just vote together. Um, one guy that kind of, in a way gives credence to what's happening in the third estate because remember that these people eventually they're going to get locked out of the estates general um, mostly because they're they're being relatively contrarian in these meetings and so they're like well we don't really need you to to pass anything so they get locked out they think it's a plot they do the whole tennis court oath thing i'll talk about that there here in a second but the person that kind of goes to them and says look you guys are the real France. And that's Emmanuel Joseph Sayas, who actually is a uh, part of the clergy. Um, and the reason that he's important is that it, it takes guys like him to kind of give the people in the third estate the idea that, you know what, that what we are doing is okay. Um, I think that a lot of people, especially from the countryside, who are very Catholic, we're very worried about the idea of going against the Catholic Church, especially during their lifetime. This is one of the things that Karl Marx will talk about later when he gets to around 1848. And one of the reasons why Marx sees religion, he calls it the opiate of the masses, because in Marx's mind, 
a lot of people will actually give up their own rights for the idea that their life in the afterlife will be better. And, and Marx always said, it's nonsensical. Why would you give up your, your life here and now so that you can have something that you have no idea what it's going to be like? He's, it's not sensical. But at that time, when these people are incredibly Catholic and they're thinking, if I go against the Catholic Church, I might go to hell, they're going to be willing to vote kind of in line with the Catholic Church. And so someone like Sayez, who comes to them and says, look, you are France. You're the real France. It, it does kind of give credence to what they are trying to do. Um, so, they will convene the Estates General in May of 1789. This was 175 years after the last time they had done it. And so that means Louis XIV never called the Estates General. Louis XV never called the Estates General. Louis XVI comes in, realizes he needs to raise money, uh, mostly t- to fund wars and things. Um, and interest, and uh, it, everything goes wrong. This should feel a lot like the English Civil War. Remember when, uh, right before the English Civil War happens, why did Charles call Parliament together? To raise taxes, right? And the first thing he does is just dismisses him. That's, that's called the short Parliament. And then he calls them again, because he needs to raise taxes. He calls them again, and they're like, hey, we have a document you need to sign. He's like, what is this document? Well, it says that you can't dismiss us without us saying that that's okay. He's like, no. They go, well, we're not leaving. Great. We'll say they have the English Civil War. It's very similar to what's going to happen in the French Revolution. So what moment is very similar to what, the, what happened with the Long Parliament? This one. The tennis court oath, right? So these guys... They, they lock themselves in a tennis court, which is probably more of a handball court, but they're in this giant space um, that becomes kind of the political movement of the revolution starting. Now, it, the revolution hasn't quite kicked off from a, a physical standpoint, but from a political standpoint, they're saying you can't let us go without us being seen as the, the actual National Assembly of France. And so I would, if I were you, make sure to write down the, the author here of this, the Tennis Court Oath, Jacques-Louis David, who is probably the greatest French neoclassical painter of all times for a variety of reasons. One, he's a court painter under Louis XVI. He's a court painter under the revolutionary government. And he's a court painter under Napoleon, mostly because he's so good. Um, he also doesn't just paint French revolutionary stuff. It's just that everyone knows his French revolutionary stuff because it's the most popular. Uh, his other work outside of the French revolution that's also really quite good is called the Oath of Haredi, um, which kind of goes back to an old legend from classical Europe. Um, but he is going to document through his paint painting, uh, a number of incredibly important moments in the French revolution during the, uh, before the French Revolution, and then after during the Napoleonic era. Um, Now, the first physical action of the revolution is the storming of the Bastille. Um, So I do want you to put this in in your notes, July 14th, 1789. This is also known as their Bastille Day, which is very much like our Independence Day. If you ever get a chance to go to France on Bastille Day, it is a bit of a riot. Literally, Literally. Um, but what this does is it, and I think they do a good job in the video talking about this and and the way that they tore down the Bastille after this, because in a lot of ways, it's incredibly symbolic of them removing the ancient regime from France, like brick by brick, right? They're just literally just tearing the Bastille down. Um, and it's an incredibly symbolic, uh, prison in France because it's an old medieval prison that was seen as this kind of domineering of despotism where if you were just against the king, you'd get thrown in the Bastille and tortured or killed or something like that. Um, and so incredi- it, it becomes incredibly symbolic uh, of the end of despotism. The other uh, thing that happens relatively quickly in this period is the great fear. Now, the great fear and the reign of terror are very different. Um, the great fear is more of a peasant 
revolt because they're afraid that the nobility and the aristocracy are going to come back and take over their country again. Um, and so instead of allowing that to happen, and the reason that they're thinking this is that most countries outside of France, the second the revolution kind of begins with the, the Bastille Day and then eventually the Paris Bread March, which we'll talk about here in a second, those events will kind of spur a lot of countries outside of Europe to start mobilizing against the French um, to the point where you know the, the French will actually declare war on Austria. Why do you think Austria becomes where the French declare war on first? Um, well, Marie Antoinette was from there. Yeah, Marie Antoinette is from there. That is where Marie Antoinette was kind of that uh, political alliance between the Bourbons and the Habsburgs. So it makes sense that Austria is going to be one of the first to come in and try to help Marie and Louis kind of rectify the situation. Um, a lot of these countries, and even after this, will utilize alliances with other countries to try to put down revolts. Um, now, it's far more successful after the French Revolution. The French Revolution was one of the most successful revolutions in history and also one of the worst revolutions in history because it goes badly, um, especially towards the end. But... Uh, one of the things that the National Assembly creates from the very beginning is the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and this slogan becomes the slogan of the revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity, which uh, I would just put down in your notes, uh, liberty, equality, brotherhood, liberty, equality, fraternity, either way, that works fine. Now, one of the early moments in French history is going to be the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which is going to happen in August of 1789. Um, the other thing that I haven't gone over yet is the Paris Bread March, which I'm going to go over here in a second. Um, that particular moment is going to also somewhat shift the power structure of Europe. And we'll talk about that when we get there. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen is one of those transformational documents where this one, the English Bill of Rights and the American Declaration of Independence are seen as kind of the staples of Western democracy. Uh, those three documents in the history of Western democracy are probably the most influential um, Thomas Jefferson was actually in Paris at the time of the writing of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Um, he had spent time in Paris before he wrote our Declaration of Independence as well. Um, he, him and Ben Franklin actually went back and forth from Paris to uh, um, America a number of different times. But one of the things that the Declaration of the Rights of Man had to deal with is it's a relatively short document, but it outlines basic human rights. But... They have questions still, and I got to switch my uh, slideshows really quickly here because my my other slideshow goes into more detail here. Here's the problem that they have: they're not sure who these rights should include. So the questions for the Declaration of the Rights of Man are: Should women have rights? Now, eventually, the answer is going to be no. Uh, someone actually later, and we'll talk about her in a second, or I'll, I'll reference her again later, Olympe de Gouges, who's um, going to eventually be killed by the revolution, will write the Declaration of the Rights of Women and try to present that to the National Assembly, and she will be executed as anti-revolutionary. Um, so it, it's very clear that, that women are not going to get rights. Uh, as far as slaves are concerned, the answer is going to be yes. Uh, slaves will be freed in the colonies. Now, there's a caveat to that. Napoleon puts it back. <laughs> um, so when Napoleon takes over later, he'll actually reinstate slavery, have a bit of a slave revolt, have some issues there, have some issues in continental Europe, and eventually get exiled twice. But um, he will put it back. But they, they initially decide, yes, if we're saying all people should be free, then yes, we mean slaves too. Um, and then if, if slavery could be justified, the answer is no, it can't. And so they will say that slavery is not a good thing. Um, but they will say also that you should have some religious tolerance. So there's some yeses, some noes. Sorry, women, you're going to have to wait another 100 years uh, or so. We're working on it. 
Okay. Um, the next big event is the Paris Bread March. Now, you guys, they, they did a good job of going over this in the documentary. Uh, these are the, the Poussade, right? The fish ladies who are walking 14 miles from Paris to, to Versailles. Now, again, by the time they get to Versailles, there's 20,000 of them. You could just imagine 20,000 people. That's, amount, that's the amount of people that go and watch a basketball game, like an, an NBA game. So you put 20,000 people and walk them 14 miles. They're already mad enough to walk 14 miles. And then they actually do the 14-mile walk, talking to each other about what they're doing. By the time they get to the palace, they're ready to kill the queen. Right? They're like, this is it. We, we just walked 14 miles. We haven't eaten in however long. Uh, we need the food and we need the queen because we're going to kill her. Uh, now, obviously, they don't, they don't kill the queen initially. They kill all the guards, put their heads on pikes, right? And this becomes a continuation of that popular violence. So I would make sure in your notes to also put popular violence. Um, popular violence is going to be incredibly an incredibly strong component of the revolution. Remember that even our Thomas Jefferson said, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. No one really thought democracy was going to be peaceful. Most people thought democracy had to be won through fighting. Um, and, and quite honestly, most democracies have been won through fighting, um, not through a peaceful transition. I realized the Glorious Revolution happened, but the Glorious Revolution was glorious because it was bloodless after a civil war that was not bloodless. So um, I, I think that there are few democracies, and they are far between, that actually can say that they were born out of uh, nonviolent acts. But uh, this is the continuation of that popular violence. Now, if you're a new government, once you've kind of taken the king and queen from Versailles, brought them to Paris... First of all, what is that symbol? Um, well, you have to look at what Versailles was symbolizing because they, the entire reason they built the place was to get away from the peasants in Paris and all that. And now that they're in Paris again, they're kind of like, you know, at gunpoint of the peasants. Yeah, so you, you have this wrestling of power back from Versailles, which had been the symbol of decadence and royal... Uh, holding all of the royals holding all the power in one place and the people are bringing that back right and um i, I like that this is a peasant movement really but the national assembly really isn't a peasant movement it's it's a bourgeois movement and they're utilizing the peasants violent uprising and just kind of channeling it into what they see as how they can change the government um and that's really one of the the issues that they have now is though if you're in charge, which they're going to be, you have to deal with the fact that you're in debt. And so what do you do? The biggest issue they had was they have no capital. So to get capital, they confiscate church land. Why do you think this was possibly a bad decision? Because uh, if you're pissing off the Catholic Church, you're getting pissing off everyone in Europe. Basically. Yeah, the Catholic Church has had a monolithic power structure in Europe for a thousand years or more. And so one thing is most of your peasants specifically generally either work on church land or live on church land. And so when you're taking church land away, you are also possibly taking away their jobs. And so if you're a peasant living outside of Paris and you don't have this strong revolutionary fervor where you're thinking, yeah, we're going to take over the country and this is going to be awesome. You're thinking, wait a second, they just took my job away. Or wait a second, you just took away where I live. What's going to happen next? So now you just have a period of uncertainty. Um, and that's going to be a consistent theme when the new revolutionary government starts dealing with the Catholic Church. They generally are dealing with the Catholic Church from a very Parisian worldview. And a lot of these countryside peoples are not thinking the same way that most of the people in Paris were thinking. Uh, a good example of that is Charlotte Corday, right? Charlotte Corday comes in to kill Jean-Paul Marat because she thinks this is going to solve everything. He's the problem. You know, he's producing this propaganda motor of the revolution, which is the friend of the, the, friend of the people, l'ami de Popla. 
And she's thinking, if I kill him, it's going to end everything. It backfires, right? But that is a common theme of a lot of the people outside of Paris is that this is just a, a radical movement. And, and we're not sure we really uh, identify with it. Um, the other thing that they do is they start using the church land to print assignats. Now, these assignats were basically like government bonds. Have you guys ever seen like old American uh, bond propaganda, war bond propaganda, where, you know, buy war bonds, uh, go USA, and, and, you know, Uncle Sam is pointing at you. you. You have a chance to help us out, that kind of thing, right? So very similar concept. But they did a, uh, a significant problem with the assignants. They linked it to the church land, and then they just kept printing more and more and more and more assignants, which does what? Creates inflation. And when you have significant inflation, and then the church land is no longer rendering much value, uh, the depreciation of these assignants are vast. They go from, you know, if you bought one early on, the same assignat, say it was worth 100 francs or something like that. By the time 1795 rolled around, it was worth like two francs. So it had almost no value uh, at the end of it. And that's called depreciation. Everyone have this, uh, I can slightly move on. If not, you can go back on the podcast. So the other thing they do is they take over the church. And again, if you're a non-Parisian, meaning someone living outside of Paris, and you're looking at what the government's doing, you're going, wait a second, the church is being taken over by this revolutionary government? What is going on here? Um, again, these are not people that are really sold that the revolution is the right thing to do. And so this, for them, is incredibly interesting, to say the least. Remember that in the American Revolution... One of the things when we created the separation of church and state, one of the reasons for that is because no one, especially since a lot of the colonies had different churches, they didn't want the state to ever tell the church what to do. That was one of the big components of the separation of church and state. And so to have a, a state actually take over the Catholic church, assign who was going to be in charge of certain things, was to be fair, at, at the very least, a little risque, um, especially for people living outside of Paris. Um, now, I told you about Olympe de Gouges earlier. Uh, like we said, her version of the Declaration of Rights of Women, which I will say, if you read it, it, it is pretty demanding. Um, now, remember when we talked about Mary Wollstonecraft? What was kind of her ability to somewhat Jedi mind trick people when it came to women's rights? Yeah? Yeah, she, she gives this old, um, you know, yeah, you, you know what? Women are not equal. So she starts the conversation in a way that they're like, yes, continue. That's fine. We can, you know, you're, you're good. Um, but then she gets to the point where she says, look, if you educate us, you give us opportunity, we will demonstrate over time that we can be. And, and that approach tends to be relatively acceptable. If you look at what Olympe de wrote in the Declaration of the Rights of Women, she is doing it from a very, like, almost demanding perspective. And she dies for it, okay? It's, it's very clear that the revolutionaries are thinking, you know what, we have our own problems. You're just one of them. Um, we're going to remove you and make sure that you don't become a bigger problem. So she will die. Uh, now, the radical phase is considered 1792 to 1794. And the three groups that become the most important within that are the Jacobins, the Girondin, and the sans culottes now, the Jacobins is that society that really is rooted in cafes and salons and very enlightenment-based. Uh, your Maximilian Robespierre is probably one of the key components of the Jacobins. Um, the Girondin are your countryside peoples that are there um, as representatives in the Estates General, but they are much more in tune with the countryside and therefore much more moderate. And then you have the sans-culottes, which is this group of working class, upper middle class people that, you know, of course, don't wear the knee breeches, which is a symbol of the nobility because they're, they're kind of the, the middle class hipsters in a way. They're like, yeah, we're very middle, lower class and not upper class, even though they actually had some wealth. So 
this particular group, the sans culottes, is actually one of the groups that's the most important in the great fear. Remember the great fear was what? Yeah, when, when the third estate is thinking, you know what, the aristocracy is eventually going to come back. What, why don't we just eliminate the aristocracy? It becomes very like rumor-based fear. Um, they go in and just kill a number of nobles immediately. Uh, and the sans culottes are, are kind of a key component of that group. Now, going forward, what is going to be the most probably important event, and also you can link back to the English Civil War, is killing Louis. Remember back to the English Civil War, how close the vote was between if they should or should not actually kill Charles? And it's very clear, at least to someone like Oliver Cromwell, that, hey, if if what we did was right, then the king needs to die. Well, it's kind of the same statement they're making in the French Revolution. If we did what was right, and people should have rights, and it's based on the people, not on the king upholding them, then the king needs to die. Now, this is not overly popular outside in the countryside. In the countryside, most people are not really thinking this. And so, again, they're looking at Paris thinking, Paris has gone mad. Like, this is just craziness. Um, So he dies in January of 93. In October of 93, they will kill Marie. Um, And so at this point you've kind of solidified the fact that that Austria quite is going to hate you. Um, And that's going to be a significant issue going forward. Now, Napoleon will actually marry an Austrian after his first wife. He he marries his first wife, Josephine, will not be able to have children. We'll talk about this next week. She, She can't have children. She's barren. And so she actually gives, grants Napoleon a divorce. Napoleon will marry an Austrian. Did it go blank? Oh, jeez. Wait, Kayla, why are you trying to get it on my... Um, okay, let me try this again. I've been having issues with the Apple TV for a little while here. So hopefully I can get back on. If I can't, I just got to finish the, the notes and you'll have to take them from my, uh, from my, vote, my voice. So if you can write down um, the Committee for Public Safety. The Committee for Public Safety is probably the most ironic name ever created uh their job was to kill people that weren't revolutionary enough because the safety that they are keeping safe is the revolution itself um in their mind they obviously think they are doing what is right and if you're trying to compare this to another time and another time in history especially european history this would feel a lot like stalin's great purges where you're just trying to like purge the not the the people that aren't communist enough it's kind of what the committee for public safety is doing Um, And again, this is part of the reason why I try to keep reminding you that concept that, you know, extremism in any form is dangerous, that the farther extreme you get, uh, the more you lose who you are. Um, Someone like Robespierre, who saw himself as kind of that beacon of the the liberal thought coming before that, gets to a point where he's essentially operating as a dictator and calling for heads just like everyone else um, in a very revolutionary act. Uh, the two people by the end of the radical phase that are the most powerful are Robespierre, write down Robespierre, and Danton. Danton is a very large boxer-looking guy. Um, hopefully my TV shows up again, but we'll see if that actually works. Maybe? Woohoo! Okay. So Robespierre is there on the left. Danton uh, is there on the right. Obviously, Danton looks a little bit like he's been in one too many fights. But um, he looks like a boxer, honestly. Uh, But Danton is the moderate in the radical phase, kind of saying, hey, maybe we should stop the killing thing, maybe have a little bit more normalcy. And Robespierre doesn't think that it's time for that yet, wants to continue to purify the government. Again, you guys are reading tonight the justification of the use of terror, um, and we'll talk more tomorrow about what that means. Um, but he will basically say that terror is necessary to create the government, the civic virtue that we're going to need to do things the way that we think it's right. Now, in 1793, you have the death of Marat. The person that kills him is Charlotte Corday. 
and she is from the countryside. So she is a, a country bumpkin out there coming from the countryside. And she's thinking, if I kill Marat, th- this ends the, the French Revolution because he's the, he's the driving force of this Lamy de Peuple. So when she kills him, um, she thinks she's doing the country a favor, to be fair. And of course, as you know, they kind of turn Marat into a saint of the revolution. Um, they put his, his bathtub up on an altar during his, uh, his funeral. Um, they, they do these nice busts of Marat. Marat goes, I think, at times even on some of the revolutionary propaganda that they were creating. Um, and the person who, of course, that documents this is, again, Jacques-Louis David, who is the most important neoclassical pa- painter in this period. Uh, of course, he does it where Marat is draped just like the Pieta. Um, so it's a reference to Michelangelo's Pieta, uh, which is probably one of the most important sculptures in Western history. Again, it's also that classical reference. So neoclassicism, you have the classical reference to the uh, Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and then you also have the reference to the Renaissance. And then later, there's another art piece that's going to use the Pieta, actually a number of art pieces over time that'll use this. But the, probably the most famous one that's not the death of Marat is called Guernica. Um, and that's a Picasso piece. And we'll get to that when we get to the Spanish Civil War. Um, so I would just make sure to have uh, David. I'll have him throughout these notes. I'll have each event that he does. He does the tennis court oath, the death of Marat, uh, the coronation of Napoleon, Napoleon crossing the Alps, all that kind of stuff. I can't even. Um, Okay. The last thing that I need you to put down for today, I think, is... I think it is the last one. Yeah. Uh, Is Leve en masse. So you guys can... I'll I'll spell it for you. L-E-V-E-E. That's Leve. On, E-N. Mass is M-A-S-S-E. Which translates to uh, Army of the People. And France creates its revolutionary army during this radical phase of the revolution. What makes it significantly different is that this is an army based on merit, not status. So someone like a Napoleon is able to move from a soldier to a general through levee en masse. Um, now, the, the army itself is 500,000 strong. So it's a very big army. It's the biggest army in Europe at the time. Uh, Napoleon will eventually invade Russia when he takes over with something like 400,000 troops. He'll come home with 10,000. But this particular army is a byproduct of this revolutionary movement. Okay. Um, And it gives people the opportunity to participate uh, in the revolution and preserving the revolution against outside forces. So, I'm going to stop there because it makes probably the most sense. And then um, I will go over the end of the radical phase tomorrow before we get into Socratic seminar. So after Levé en masse, which was that uh, people's army, uh, they start also with the reign of terror ramping up the amount of people that are going to be dying uh, in the revolution. And this is where Robespierre is focusing on preserving uh, civic virtue through terror, which we're going to talk more about when we get to our Socratic seminar. Um, One of the things that you are going to see that becomes a constant uh, issue in the French Revolution is that people outside of Paris are significantly in a different place than the people in Paris. So you have this Parisian worldview where they're almost pushing the revolution forward at a pace that no one's ready for. And then you have a worldview from the countryside where everyone's just kind of going, can we calm down and just stop for a minute? And the people in Paris are thinking, well, that clearly they're not revolutionary enough. And so you start to see revolt. And one of the significant revolts of the revolution is the Vendée Revolt, uh, which breaks out in the countryside and becomes a problem the revolutionary army has to go and take care of. And so you have the revolution killing its own people in order order to continue to preserve the revolution. Now, 
in the English Civil War, or not the English Civil War, but if you rewind even further, remember Henry VIII, right when he switched over to Anglican? Um, he had a revolt. Um, it's called the Pilgrimage of Grace, where people are like, we're still Catholic. We'd like you to still be Catholic. And they start raising an army and like moving north. And Henry's just like, no, we got to get rid of them. It's going to be the same thing. And the theme here is that the revolutionary government ends up becoming a very tyrannical government, just like the one that preceded it. And so even though they're trying to preserve democracy, create democracy in France, in turn, they're doing it through tyrannical means, which probably is not the best option. Um, And that's going to be a theme for us as we go through today. So in the Vendée Revolt, one of the things that they had in their symbol, it says underneath it, for God and King, which is kind of a reference to traditional divine right of kings, traditional Catholic thinking in France. And so what what I think is important for us is, again, trying to create that distinction between the worldview in the countryside versus the worldview in the city and in Paris specifically. And to be fair, that is probably the case to this day. Um, if you think about America, America is also very polarized based on the city or California, New York, and then everyone else. You know, the middle of the country is a very different world than the world that we live in in California or in New York. And I think that that is very similar to the way that things were progressing in Paris as well. You have a very uh, liberal revolution going on in Paris uh, that goes to a place where we're like, you know what, in order to do what we want to do, what we think is right, we have to become tyrannical to do it. And that becomes their modus of operandi, which is not really going to work in the end. So one of the programs that they start creating, we call the de-Christianization program. And again, this is a way to move their worldview out of what they see as the ancient regime and the old regime Europe to a more modern reason-based approach, which is their their kind of enlightenment perspective uh, that you have to get rid of traditional ways of thinking. And so they do the de-Christianization program. Now, there's a couple things that actually come out of this that's okay, like the metric system, but the calendar is a disaster. And why is the calendar a disaster? Yes. Well, because it starts like very recently. So everything that happened for the last like 5,000 years is just not on there. Okay, so that could be a problem is that they're, they're somewhat trying to just erase history in a way. And that, that's accurate from a um, uh, kind of a, a perspective of it's not just literal, it's also figurative, because they're also trying to figuratively get rid of their own history. Yeah? Uh, isn't it, like, based on, like, science and, like, the movement of the planets that are kind of, like, today is Thursday now? Yeah, so they, they did a calendar that turned it into decades. The, the thing that they were trying to do is make everything very reason-based. So it's like, let's have 10-day weeks. That makes sense. It's 10, not 7. Why is it 7? So let's have 10 nice round numbers. Uh, let's turn everything into very systematic ways. Let's make it so that they're based on the seasons. So we'll start calling them seasonal names, the months and things. Um, but if you were a peasant or a worker, what did this do to your work week? You went from a seven-day work week to a 10-day work week. So if you're an average person and not part of the bourgeois class, the upper middle class, you hate this system. I, I, you just added three days to my work week. It's not exciting. There's no more Wednesday. What happened to hump day? <laughs> now, you're, now you're dealing with something completely different. So there's a significant shift and, and that's not going to be beneficial. And again, if, if we can at least understand that the people in Paris think they're doing what's right. The people in the countryside keep thinking, why do we keep just getting batted over the head with what they're doing in Paris? Because this is not benefiting me. Um, Their calendar looked something like this. It only lasted uh, 14 years. And eventually Napoleon will remove the uh, Republican calendar and go back to a traditional calendar. So the thing that ends up happening also is they try to also get rid of public exercise of religion. Um, They try to also get rid of uh, certain really world heritage places like the Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, which technically is getting rebuilt right now, had a bit of a fire. Um, but 
back then they actually turned it from a Catholic church into the temple of reason. So they tried to make it into an enlightenment church uh, where people could go and contemplate enlightenment stuff, justice and things. Um, so it's, it's a way for them to, again, try in their mind, moving away from that superstition and going towards reason. But again, if you're an average Parisian or an average person in the countryside, they think you're kind of, you've lost it. Um, and, and that's going to be a significant issue going forward as well. There's the Temple of Reason. The part that is currently burned down is the, the middle part here. That's what they're rebuilding right now, which is a little unfortunate because it, it was quite nice, I will say. Uh, but it is still quite nice. It'll just have to get redone. Um, and this is the thing that was hung above the, the Temple of Reason. It said, come, holy liberty, inhabit this temple, become the goddess of the French people. So... Um, they're kind of calling on liberty itself to become their new deity, which is obviously clear, clearly odd. Um, and then the festival of the Supreme Being became an example, again, of the government trying to create a uh, secular holiday that people could celebrate. Because they're trying to think, okay, we realize people are not having a great time with this whole 10-day work week. Maybe we should start having holidays and things so that people can have fun. They used to do this in the Middle Ages too, where, you know, when people were up in arms about things or revolting or on the verge of revolt, they'd throw them a party and like create a holiday so that people could go have fun and things. Mostly also organized boxing matches. It was actually kind of funny. They could just beat up on each other and then be happy and get drunk and things. And that was the way the Middle Ages dealt with it. They're thinking, okay, how do we kind of calm down tension and things? We've got to have a holiday, but we can't have a Christian holiday, so we need to have a different holiday and they instead do the Festival of the Supreme Being. And this is where Robespierre shows up at the top of this papier-mâché mountain in a full toga. And as the documentary said, it said he's probably thinking, I guess I've just become God or something like that. Um, now, he probably never thought that. But like people like Benjamin Franklin, who was more of a deist than anything else, um, he believed that you needed some form of a religious something to get people uh, to kind of stay in line and things. And so Robespierre always really thought that way. Um, and that's why he probably got to that place. Now, as far as backlash is concerned, I would argue this first one's the most important. It alienates too much of the country. If you're trying to, again, remove traditional ways of thinking from your country, doing it as fast as they are is probably not going to be a success. And the people in the countryside, people outside of the city, are the ones who are the most against it. I mean, the, the girls like Charlotte Corday from the countryside that are going to come in and kill Marat, she's clearly not thinking what they're doing in Paris is a great idea. Yes? I mean, like, all of this is totally idolatry from the Catholic point of view. Absolutely. Um, there, there becomes not only a worldview culture uh, shift, it's also a religious worldview shift there's all sorts of things that are all kind of butting heads at the same time. And if you're the revolutionary government, you're just throwing it all out, um, which, again, is, is a bit dangerous, to say the least. Um, now, after the dechristianization program, they get into the end of the Reign of Terror, which goes from May to July of 94. By the time you get to July 28th, that is when they execute Robespierre, um, they had killed 1,500 people from June to July. That's, you know, a number per hour. It's, it's something like six or eight people per hour are getting executed in Paris. Um, and I know that doesn't seem like it's just like rolling off the carts, but at the same time, it's, it's a constant show. Um, and if you're, again, a Parisian living in Paris at the time, even you are getting a little sick of this revolution because you're afraid that I'm now living in a police state. Where, you know, if I don't call you citizen so-and-so, I might get executed because I called you madam whatever instead of citizen. Uh, or I might get executed because I didn't go to the parade yesterday or I didn't go to the Festival of the Supreme Being. You, you could get turned in for virtually anything and they'd be like, yep, you're right, not revolutionary enough. Let's remove them. Um, so in order to preserve their revolution, it becomes really all-consuming. Uh, and that's clearly a problem. Here's the last slide. Uh, Robespierre and Danton will both die in 94. Danton, I believe, dies 
towards the end of June. I'm not sure the exact date. And then Robespierre, uh, July 28th, he's executed. And to be fair, that becomes kind of the end of that radical phase of the revolution. So I think that for us, the things that we should be taking away from the French Revolution is, especially the radical phase of the French Revolution, is that anytime you are willing to push for change, if you change everything overnight, it probably will come with some pretty big issues. Uh, If you try to do it slowly over time, it has better chance of success than if you just change everything immediately. Um, unless you're willing to go through a significant problem with violence. Uh, and to be fair, also, the people in the French Revolution, guys like Robespierre and guys like Jefferson and others, they thought that democracy was a violent uh, political thing. It's, it's not that it wouldn't be violent. So it's important for us to not kind of say, oh, democracy is inherently peaceful. It's not inherently peaceful. Most people that fight have to fight for democracy uh, in order for it to happen. And when we look at you guys' documents that you read, Robespierre makes that statement. Uh, He makes the statement that democracy is violent. Um, And Jefferson made that statement, too. It's not like our system was significantly different. So... Going forward, there's a couple of different LEQ prompts that I'm going to probably give you for next week's LEQ outline. Um, And I'll probably have the LEQ outline due Thursday night. Um, So I'll post them for you. And I'm actually going to have you take a pick on the the one that you're going to do. Um, There's three essay possibilities. Compare and contrast the French Revolution and the English Civil War. Um, Making sure to uh, pay attention to similarities and differences. The second question is going to be a question in regards to describing the ways in which the French Revolution were a success or failure in the ideas of the Enlightenment. Um, And then the third question will be about Napoleon. It'll be something like, uh, many people believe that Napoleon was one of the greatest enlightened despots in history. Uh, Confirm or deny this statement. Um, So it'll be one of those three prompts. You can either do Napoleon, you can do Enlightenment versus French Revolution, or English Civil War versus French Revolution. But you're kind of you're all kind of comparison. They're all comparison or uh, continuity and change over time. Okay. So uh, we'll end there and then we'll get into Socratic seminar.